so good afternoon, uh, everyone. I'm sorry to keep you waiting a little bit. You've seen our group uh, assembly. I should have jumped up a little bit sooner uh, to introduce uh, myself uh, and the uh, great group we've got assembled for you and this uh, event that uh, you've all come uh, to attend. Let me start with myself. Uh, my name is Daniel Chu. Uh, I'm the deputy director of the Brent Schoolcraft Center. I'm newly arrived. I was at the Pentagon uh, prior to this uh, as the deputy assistant secretary of defense for strategy there. Uh, and one of the issues that was uh, of great interest and concern to me uh, while I was doing uh, long-term planning and analysis for the secretary of defense uh, was the issue of energy security uh, and thinking hard about how energy security was going to shape uh, our national security interests and challenges uh, into the future, uh, certainly around the world. But as we thought hard about the Asia-Pacific rebalance, uh, in particular, how energy security uh, could shape how we thought about the Asia-Pacific region. That's why uh, I'm particularly uh, pleased and excited to be able to introduce this particular discussion. It's part of our Cross Straits uh, series, which we do in close collaboration uh, with our friends from uh, Tecro, to look at energy security and the implications for the Asia-Pacific uh, region. Uh, as you know, we think a lot about the Asia-Pacific region and what I would call fairly traditional uh, types of security challenges in those regions. The energy aspect, I think, has been underappreciated and under-examined, uh, and so I think this is a great opportunity uh, for us to do that. Uh, in doing that, we've assembled uh, quite a great, good group uh, of people that I think will bring some uh, great perspective uh, to you and, and hopefully be not only very informative to you, uh, but very engaged uh, with your questions and some discussion uh, afterwards. Uh, starting with uh, my friend and colleague, Bob Manning, uh, who is, of course, a senior fellow here at the uh, Scowcroft Center uh, and is uh, one of the foremost experts on energy security uh, issues, uh, including uh, his publication lately uh, on energy security in Asia uh, just last year, is that right, or just a few months uh, ago? Right, in, in particular with regard to the shale uh, revolution. So Bob will bring uh, that expertise uh, to us as we go forward. Uh, we also have uh, Mr. Edward Chow, uh, who I'm meeting for the first time, but very glad uh, to meet, who is a senior fellow uh, for energy and national security program at uh, the Center for Strategic uh, and International uh, Studies. Uh, and as you all know, CSIS has done some great work uh, in this particular area. So thank you for coming uh, and looking forward to that uh, discussion. Uh, as as well. Next is Ms. Meredith uh, Miller, uh, who is the Senior Vice President of Trade, Economic and Energy Affairs at the uh, National Bureau of uh, Asian Research. Uh, obviously well focused on, on these particular issues and very much looking forward uh, to her bringing her perspective uh, to this discussion uh, as well. Uh, and last but not least, a uh, good friend of mine, former colleague in the Pentagon, uh, Dr. Van Jackson, who's visiting fellow uh, at Center for a New American Security. Uh, not only uh, does Van know the uh, region extremely well, uh, but when he worked in my office was one of uh, the key uh, staff members that, that I had working on future uh, trends and issues, both in terms of focusing on the role of innovation, uh, particularly for the Department of Defense, but also in looking at uh, how long-term trends could truly change the way we think about uh, national security in the future. So I think Van will bring some great uh, perspective uh, to this as well. And then, fortunately for you all, moderating this session is not me, uh, but it's Mr. Keith Johnson, uh, who is a senior reporter at, at Foreign Policy. Uh, he will help us moderate this particular discussion uh, and then uh, make sure that there's time uh, as well for some uh, questions and answers afterwards. So thank you all very much uh, for coming. I think this is going to be a great discussion. I hope it's one that will put this issue uh, on everybody's uh, radar uh, going forward and uh, generate uh, more discussion. Uh, we 
in the Scowcroft Centre are certainly going to be uh, focusing on this uh, as an aspect of uh, security issues that we, international security issues that we need to be thinking of. We're going to be working closely with our friends uh, in uh, our Energy and Environment uh, Centre as well uh, to ensure that uh, we have a, a very holistic view and a very multidisciplinary uh, view on this. Uh, I hope you will come. Uh, we have multiple events coming up uh, in that vein as well. Uh, those of you who are interested in these issues, I hope you will come uh, and attend those events uh, as well. We'll have some information for you uh, outside. Uh, but again, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, and Keith, uh, over to you. Great. Fantastic. Well, listen, thanks. Um, you know, I did just want to preface this with one little remark. I have sort of a professional deformation since I cover energy geopolitics. Uh, so I uh, artificially look at everything through an energy prism just so I can justify writing about stuff. But in many cases, it's actually true. Uh, and in East Asia and Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, uh, the energy component, energy security, energy insecurity, perceptions of energy insecurity, all of that does uh, come in to influence the larger geopolitical picture, uh, interstate relations, and even in some cases the threat of conflict. And so I think it's a really interesting uh, prism to look at the entire region in. And since we've, we're running a little bit behind schedule, I think we've already got all the introductions. What I wanted to do was have our four panelists go through uh, Bob, you're going to give a broad overview of sort of the energy trends. Uh, Ed, if you could sort of zero in on, on China's energy situation, security, insecurity, and how that might affect things in the South China Sea. Uh, Meredith, the same for Southeast Asia. Uh, and Van, if you can explain everything about the Hermit Kingdom, that would be great. <laughs> Fire away, Bob. Okay. Um, well, let me just start with sort of giving you some context. I think a Asians have tend to have a very strategic view of energy security, an almost mercantilist approach, although that's changing a bit. This, everybody focuses on China and how aggressive it's been in acquiring equity oil over the world, but they learned mostly from Japan. In the 1970s, Japanese spent somewhere between 40 and $50 billion trying to look for equity oil, and all they got out of it was 200,000 barrels in Kuwait, which was a license that was not renewed, uh, uh, but so it was an expensive lesson. And I, you've seen it. I've seen it across the board. Uh, not just China, but India is doing the same thing. The Koreans have done a bit of it. Uh, so, so they're very focused on it. And I think it's not an accident, for example, that uh, you know the Chinese have this new uh, one road, one belt Eurasia strategy. Uh, one one important piece of that is their their concern about being dependent on the sea lanes and oil from the Middle East. So you see pipelines to Kazakhstan, to Turkmenistan, the deals with Russia. I mean, I think they're looking at that in very strategic uh, terms. And I don't want to get into detail on the South China Sea, but I'll, I'll just say this is I'll just talk about the technology factor. Twenty years ago, uh, deep sea and ultra deep sea drilling capabilities didn't exist anywhere near where they are today. And so the oil and gas in the South China Sea was not really recoverable. And we can argue about how much of this is about sovereignty and how much of it is about resources. And I, I, I go back and forth on that one. Maybe Ed can shed some light on it. Uh, hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it's important. And the, the other thing that people don't tend to focus on, but I think are a very important factor, is the sort of the Middle East Asia energy nexus. 
Asians get about 70% of middle, Gulf Middle East oil ex exports go to Asia. Japanese are like 83% dependent. The Chinese have been dependent, but because of a lot of investments they've made elsewhere, it's down to, I think, in the 50 range. Uh, projections are that that's going to go up. Uh, Koreans also, and most of the Southeast Asians, even though there are a lot of them, Malaysia, Indonesia, oil producers, Indonesia will soon, if they haven't already, become a net oil importer. Um, and, and, and Asia is also driving global demand. About 80% of global demand growth over the last 10 years has been in Asia. And even with the slow, relatively slow down economies, that's still probably going to be the case over the, over the coming uh, decade. And I think the, the situation a lot of them are facing, you know, Japan was dependent on uh, nuclear for more than 50% of its electricity. Uh, of all the reactors that shut down, probably not more than five or six of them, if, if that, were, are going to be restarted. So they have a huge energy gap they've been uh, casting about to figure out how to fill. Um, and, and so, and also I think in terms of gas, uh, East Asia, Korea, Japan, Taiwan have been the leading export, importers of natural gas for, for a long time and that's, that trend is continuing. Uh, China and India didn't start importing LNG until about 10 years ago, that's, that's ramping up rapidly. And that brings me to where I want to talk a little bit about the, the U.S. and how this all fits into the, the picture of U.S. policy. Um, our new energy bounty as a result of the, the shale revolution positions us uh, very nicely uh, to be a, become more of a provider of energy security to Asia. And I think if you're thinking about the so-called rebalance and the U.S. posture in the region, Think I think it'll, it'll have a, a potentially enormous impact because Asians already sort of doubtful about our uh, ability to sustain our, our focus and commitment to the region. And I think if we, Congress is, is in the process of getting rid of 19, outdated 1970s regulations on oil exports, uh, gas exports are going to begin this year. They've approved I think nine uh, LNG facilities, and there are about 22 pending licenses pending. And uh, when I talk to people in a number of Asian countries, they're looking very firmly at the U.S. Uh, being a source of, of future uh, oil and gas. And I think to the degree we can do that and sort of get more deeply woven into the whole economic fabric of the region, um, It'll have a reassurance capability uh, in terms of how how people see the U.S. in the longer term. That if we're a greater part of the Asian economy, and because we're up, we're kind of up against it to start with. Because even though U.S. trade and investment in the region is it continues to increase in absolute terms, and it's declining in relative terms because China and other Asians are growing so much faster. So. That's always a consideration is sort of the, the whole inter-Asian dynamic becoming more important and the U.S. role becoming relatively smaller even though it's still important and will continue to be. And I think if you're looking at that, for example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
uh, Asians will, will see energy exports, that, that's something that gives us leverage in these negotiations and uh, I think may be a significant factor uh, going, going forward. Um, so I think that uh, to the degree that we don't screw that up and uh, do move forward on, on and there's a, both a direct, and in, in, there, Asia may not be the direct market for a lot of it, <coughs> but just putting more, already, for example, gas prices in Asia have gone down. The Japanese were paying about $17 now because of uh, shale revolution, it's down to about 12 and, and it allows a lot of countries to renegotiate uh, fixed gas contracts, and we've seen a lot of that all over uh, the region. I think it's probably one of the reasons why we haven't seen any pipelines being built between China and Russia. It has to do a lot to do with differences on price. Ed can talk more authoritatively about that than, than I. Um, so with that, I think I will stop there and can continue the discussion later. Thanks, Bob. No, I think that's great because I, I do want to come back later to the U.S. role in this and especially something that we've talked about in the past, which is the nexus between U.S. policymakers and their desires and the realities of the market, uh, which sometimes are two different things. So, Ed, enlighten us on all things China. Thanks, Keith. Um, as I look around the room, we have a very knowledgeable audience here, and, and so the last thing you need is to hear uh, too much talk from me. So I'm gonna, just going to... Uh, and Bob's already uh, uh, done a good job on introducing uh, the, the, the general landscape. Uh, I'll just drill down a couple of things on, on regarding China. Um, one, it may have not uh, been noticed very much in this town uh, or in the United States, but last year China passed the United States as the largest net oil importer in the world. Um, which is, is clearly something uh, that, that's uh, very uh, <coughs> significant from their point of view. Um, as Bob said, last year more than 50% of that came from the Persian Gulf, which was a down year because um, uh, shipments from Iran was down. So it's, it's uh, only going to go up. Uh, China has very ambitious programs <coughs> to increase their natural gas utilization from a very, very low base today, which is around 6%, uh, to 10% by the end of, of, of this decade. Uh, world average is 20-some percent um, uh, natural gas as a share of, of primary energy. So even that, um, it puts them at a relatively uh, low range. And if you visited Beijing recently, you'll know why they want to move towards na natural gas uh, rather than continue to burn more and more coal. Um, so, uh, and about half of that gas is currently imported, and about half of the, the, the imports are uh, uh, LNG uh, from, from the sea. So you can see that from a Chinese point of view, um, there is a great interest and in policy emphasis on diversification of supply, but also diversification um, away from maritime routes, uh, if possible. Um, and we don't understand why, I have a two word answer for you, it's called the Seventh Fleet. Um, and um, so when, when you hear about Chinese interests in Russian oil and gas deals, when you think, uh, hear about Chinese interests in Kazakhstan oil or Turkmen gas, there, there's an overall uh, context. 
for, for that interest. Uh, plus, as Bob also mentioned, they've been investing a lot overseas, uh, which for some reason get very bad uh, press for them uh, internationally. Um, I don't really understand why, if the largest oil importer in the world is investing uh, in oil and gas development um, outside of China, why that should be a bad thing. If they <coughs> didn't do that, we would call them a free rider. Um, last time I was in China, which was the end of last year, all I heard about uh, from everyone was President Obama calling China a free rider in the Tom Friedman uh, column. Uh, so. Uh, you know, uh, th this is something, to me, it's very natural to do. Now, how they do it, the terms of that trade is a different matter. But the fact that they're investing uh, uh, heavily uh, uh, abroad is, is a very natural uh, development. Um, they also have very ambitious uh, plans to develop unconventional gas domestically. And when, when Chinese talk about unconventional gas, they, they, they're not just talking about shale gas, but they include shale gas, but also cobalt methane, as well as what we would call tight gas. Um, and, and whether they are able successfully to do that or not will have a lot to do with how big of a gas importer they become uh, in the long run. You know, the question is, will the Chinese sort of heavy footprint on importing gas have a similar impact on the global gas market in the future as they did to the global oil market in the past five, six, seven years? Uh, and a lot depends on their ability to grow uh, domestic gas production. An area where the U.S. and China has some common interests and, and, and an area that we can uh, co cooperate on. But it's messy in China right now. Uh, it's all wrapped up in the question of uh, state-owned enterprise reform, which started out as a priority for the Xi Jinping uh, administration when they came in two years ago. Um, there is some interesting debates uh, in the Chinese press just in the last, uh, this year, on whether China should be creating a super major, uh, talk about combining uh, CNPC, which is the largest uh, company right now, with Sinopec to create the Chinese ExxonMobil. I mean, that's a shorthand way of, of, of thinking about it. Or should they be breaking up the companies and, and, and for example, spinning off the pipeline company uh, from, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from CNPC in, in particular, the pipeline assets? Um, there seemed to be an active debate going on. In the midst of a widespread corruption anti-corruption campaign in China, where uh, CNPC in particular has been very much a target, uh, from from uh, you know uh, Zhou Yongkong down, um, the the oil sector uh, is is in the middle of this uh, widespread uh, and deep uh, anti-corruption campaign. So the uh, one of the questions is how much political control is the party willing to let go and to have commercial uh, enterprises uh, uh, develop um, uh, inside China. Since this program is about cross-straits, uh, uh, permit me to tell one war story. Um, when I was with Chevron uh, in Beijing uh, in 1999, I took a trip from Beijing to Taipei. And um, in those days, you couldn't fly directly. Now there are probably 20 flights a day uh, between the mainland and, and, and Taipei. Uh, but so you had to go through Hong Kong in those days. 
with the blessing of the China National um, uh, Oil Corporation, um, to see if um, Chinese Petroleum Corporation of Taiwan would be willing to do cross-straits exploration together, hmm. with Chevron being the operator and, and Sinok and, and CPC of, of Taiwan, which was founded in Shanghai, by the way, um, as, as partners in that deal. Well, that, and the Chinese, the mainland Chinese were very eager to go forward with this. And, but but the, uh, the then China, uh, Taiwan government uh, was not uh, as, as, as interested. Um, so this, this question of state control, as Bob uh, uh, mentioned, um, it, it's a problem throughout this region. Uh, it's true in Korea, uh, uh, it's true in Japan. Uh, Meredith will talk about the, the, the state companies in Southeast Asia. Um, and, and, you know, and the fact that there is this um, strongly political direction of, of companies that are supposed to be involved in economic enterprises restricts the development of a true market uh, in, 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 in Asia, of, of free trading of petroleum products, you know, why wouldn't, for example, Taiwan and, and, and a Chinese company on the mainland uh, go together on a joint LNG purchase agreement with Australia? I mean, that would be the kind of thing a, a, a normal commercial company would think about. Um, why couldn't you share strategic stock? You know, China is busy building strategic stock when Japan has too much strategic stock uh, that have, have grown. Um, and, and, and where why the demand has gone down. Uh, in, in a normal commercial operation, you would say, well, why couldn't you buy an option on Japanese strategic stock or, or lease part of the uh, um, Japanese strategic stock while you're building your own? Um, it's, it, but, but it's a very much of a, of a state-by-state uh, state, uh, operation that restricts uh, trading uh, in, in, in Asia in general and, and sort of hamper the development of, of a true market. The result of which the, 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 uh, the Persian Gulf countries have been able to charge what has traditionally been called an Asian premium on crude exports to, the, to, to Northeast Asia. And particularly after Fukushima, a, a LNG premium um, as well. So this is at an economic disadvantage. So politics get in the way. I never realized until I was sent by Chevron from San Francisco to Beijing um, that, uh, that uh, Chevron's first name was America. Uh, because everywhere I went in China, it was American Chevron Company. It was never just Chevron, right? So you, you always carry the flag with you, and, and that does restrict um, uh, commercial and enterprise. One last word on the South China Sea, and I'll, I'll shut up. I think Hillary Clinton was completely wrong when she said at Georgetown University a few years ago uh, that the South China Sea was all about oil and gas. The last thing the South China Sea is about is oil and gas. The South China Sea is about sovereignty, it's about you know, uh, sea lanes of, of communication. It's even about fishery before it is about oil and gas. Um, no one in the wildest imagination, and I know a lot of geologists who have very wild imagination, can think that China would discover six to seven million barrels per day that they are um, uh, importing currently in the South China Sea. 
it's just not about oil and gas. It's about a lot of, of other things. Now, this is you know, it's putting a platform on, uh, next to Vietnam a provocation. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, you know, oil and gas is not the most important uh, thing at stake in, in the South China Sea. But Meredith can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Great. No, thanks, Ed, because that's actually one thing I wanted to dive into a little bit more is the difference between reality and perception when it comes to the role energy plays in the region. Um, Meredith, from Southeast Asia. Great. Well, um, I want to thank the Atlantic Council for having me here and also for including Southeast Asia as a particular focus in this panel discussion. Um, the story in Northeast Asia, as we've heard already from Bob and Ed, is so dramatic, and the same is true for India, that sometimes Southeast Asia is overshadowed in these discussions, but it's actually becoming a very significant center for global energy demand, and the decisions that the countries there make about their energy mix are going to have a big impact on Asia writ large and also the environmental outlook for the region. Um, it's also challenging to talk about Southeast Asia in 10 minutes because it's 10 countries. Um, they are a very, <laughs> one minute each, they're a very diverse group of countries, um, some of the wealthiest countries in the world and some of the poorest. Um, they have very different endowments in terms of their um, energy supplies domestically. But I'm going to just, to kick off our discussion, make a few uh, sweeping statements about trends in the region. Um, first is that Southeast Asia has uh, continued to post very positive economic growth. So for this year, that's 4.9%. Next year, 5.4%, according to ADB. And that's translated into um, very dramatic projections for increase in energy demand. Um, the region as a whole also still consumes uh, far less than other parts of the world, about uh, half in terms of looking at um, per person use of energy. Um, so there's a lot of room for development there. So what we see in looking at projections for the region by 2035 um, is a very sharp uptick in demand. Basically, I think the IEA put it as, imagine taking Japan and adding a new Japan to the global energy mix. That's Southeast Asia through 2035. So the region is increasingly challenged in terms of finding the energy supplies to meet that demand and sustain economic growth, putting the infrastructure in place. Um, estimates are about $100 billion are needed in Southeast Asia, 60% of that in the power sector, um, just to keep that trajectory going forward. And the environmental implications are also quite large. So on the demand side, um, overall, import dependency is going to go up. Um, by 2035, Southeast Asia will be the fourth largest importer of oil in the world. So, you know, as Bob pointed out, most of that is coming from uh, the Gulf region, and the region will increasingly be exposed and, I think, thinking more internationally about their energy security outlook. Um, coal consumption is also increasing quite rapidly in terms of its um, role in the energy mix. It's going to go up to about 50% in the future. Um, it's set to triple in that time period, so very dramatic increase. And also gas demand is going up, um, an estimated 80%. So overall, um, what we're going to see is less exports from Southeast Asia to other parts of the region. We've, uh, so the region's traditionally been an important source of coal for Northeast Asia, for India, also for gas, and historically for oil. Um, those resources are going to be used more um, within the ASEAN region going forward. Um, along with that, increase in import dependency means that countries are also um, facing a lot more fiscal pressures. Um, many of them still have subsidies in place that are an increasing burden as you start acquiring your energy supplies on the world market. Um, there's also very important environmental implications of this increase in demand. 
So for the Asian Development Bank, they've estimated that uh, Southeast Asia's CO2 emissions are projected to double. Um, they've also said that for each 10% increase in CO2 emissions, this is a broader statistic for Asia, you see 64 million people in the region um, being pushed into poverty. And overall, that economic development piece is something that commands the attention of leaders throughout the region. Um, a lot of the growth in Southeast Asia is coming from the power sector, which is why you see coal increasing so rapidly as a part of the energy mix. Um, and that is something where I think there's a lot of room for collaboration uh, with the United States and with other countries in the region. Um, maybe I'll just wrap up in talking generally about Southeast Asia by saying that I think there are some important ways that the U.S. energy revolution is impacting this picture in terms of import dependency and on the climate change mitigation side, um, which as I mentioned is going to be an increasing financial burden for the region. Um, one is the dip in oil prices that has allowed for some subsidy reforms in um, Indonesia and Malaysia in particular. Uh, Vietnam and Thailand have also made some, some moves to reduce that um, burden on their, def on their budgets and also um, Overall, the removal of those subsidies helps to increase um, and improve the efficiency outlook. Secondly, on the coal side, as I mentioned, um, very dramatic increase in coal in Southeast Asia. Most of the plants that are being built there are not using um, the best technology available. Most of them are uh, being built on a shoestring. And I think that there's a lot more that the international community could do to provide for financing to make sure that if coal-fired plants are being put in place, that they are uh, burning the coal as efficiently as possible with the least amount of CO2 emissions. Uh, on the gas side, Ed and Bob both mentioned um, the Asian premium and the uh, historical link to oil prices. Um, as more U.S. exports come into the market, and there's the opportunity to acquire more gas in the Asian region that's linked to Henry Hub prices, I think there is potential um, for gas to become more competitive vis-a-vis -vis coal on a price basis. And that's a very important development as we look at that very steep demand curve in the region. Um, one more point on oil, that dependence on the Middle East, I, I think that means that a lot more people in Asia are going to be watching very closely the debate here in the United States about whether or not we lift the current ban that we have on crude oil exports, exports in terms of diversifying the global market. And last but not least, on the climate mitigation side, um, tropical countries are going to be hit particularly hard. Um, there are major metropolitan parts of Southeast Asia um, that the ADB and um, UN have identified as being particularly prone to flooding. And there is a lot more, I think, that the U.S. could be doing in collaborating with partners in the region. There's an increasing awareness. Um, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is talking about their next phase for regional economic integration. And for the first time, they've identified the environment as being a key pillar of that. And I'll stop there. On South China Sea, let me just say, mm -hmm. I 100% agree with Ed. When you look at you know, commercial security implications, what happens with the fisheries is far more important to the coastal populations in the region than um, the really incremental contribution in terms of oil and gas demand that could come from the resources there. And the disputes are a real obstacle to proper management of those resources, which is incredibly unfortunate. I'd love to come back to fish with you in, in uh, Southeast Asia when, when we finish up. Dan? Great. So uh, 
what I have to say, I think nests well with what everybody said actually. Um, I see kind of a good news, bad news story if you step back and look at the uh, big Asia energy picture, especially for Japan and Korea, and how that picture intersects with Asia's security trends. Um, so Japan and Korea have obviously specific circumstances, but their problems and prospects with a, a few very important caveats uh, kind of echo the broader Asia Pacific's problems and prospects when it comes to energy. And so uh, the good news is that Japan and Korea, like, like ASEAN nations, like China actually, have a common interest in securing a more stable energy supply because they all share dependence right, on imports. They all are vulnerable to market disruptions. Um, and when you talk to people in the region, and I'm sure everybody's talked to people in the region, there's a general acknowledgement that that is like the rational thing to say, right? Um, and so this is a good thing. There's a widely acknowledged common interest. Um, and in theory, that should be sufficient to pursue regional infrastructure projects, regional architectures for energy, right? That should promote stability. And then that might help contain or drive down market prices. Um, and so there are a number of structural conditions on top of this common interest that also suggest a cause for optimism when you look at Japan and Korea's energy outlook, when you look at the region's energy outlook. Um, Japan and Korea are both making big R&D bets in renewables. Japan is skewing towards solar. South Korea is skewing towards hydroelectric. But they, it's, it's a diverse investment portfolio in renewables. Um, it is a small bit of their portfolio, but it's there. They're making the bets. Um, Japan and Korea are both facing demographic crises. So normally this is not a good thing, but it suggests at least that aggregate energy consumption demand from these countries has probably peaked. Um, so that's another good thing. And then what everybody has talked about, what everybody in this room probably knows, uh, the US has the potential to be a game changer uh, as we become a net exporter, right? So um, Japan and Korea have both made explicit their intention uh, to substitute or diversify away from Middle East imports in favor of US imports to the extent that they can. So the US is the supplier of choice for Japan and Korea. Um, and they've put their money where their mouth is to some extent. They've started importing US shale gas and condensate um, refined product. And so there are all these things on the positive side of the ledger for Japan and Korea looking forward. Um, but there are a bunch of negative things too. So uh, I, think, I think Bob mentioned it, but you know, US law is still constraining US export potential. And that, that may change. It feels like there's a groundswell. Um, but it hasn't changed yet, right? And Japan and Korea, their demand on Middle East, for Middle East oil is so high that even optimistic projections of US export capacity probably won't completely displace or eliminate their reliance on Middle East oil. It'll just mitigate it or reduce it. Um, and then most importantly, and this is, this is really why I'm here, um, there are some big trends in the region relating to security and geopolitics that are trumping market incentives and that are trumping collective interests. Right? If everybody can come around the table, they have summit meetings, they know that there's like a common dependence um, and that cooperation could achieve some sort of positive sum outcome, but it's not happening. Um, and so the bad news is, is that Asian national strategies for energy security 
uh, are shaped and shoved to some degree by geopolitics. And it has the effect of zero-sum thinking and zero-sum policies. Bob used the word mercantilist. I think that's totally right. And so what do I mean? Uh, one of the bigger exogenous trends that's shaping Asian energy on the whole, in Japan and Korea in particular, is uh, what a lot of Asia hands talk about is like the Asian paradox. So it's this phenomenon of simultaneous warm uh, economic relations and frigid geopolitical tensions between the same actors, right? And so putting it another way, Asian policy elites are putting up this one-way firewall, the politicians separating economic calculations on the one hand and national security strategy on the other. And there are exceptions to this, but this is happening in a lot of countries, not just Japan and Korea. And this, this serves a positive purpose, effectively. Uh, this allows trading relations to flourish even while you don't trust each other, even while you're in competition with one another, even while you're stoking historical rivalries. Right? Um, the problem, or one of many problems potentially with this, is that when you have multi-dimensional issues like energy, where it's inherently part economic and part security, like how do you separate those things, right? Um, the nationalist security imperative in places like the South China Sea and in between Japan-Korea relations, there's no love lost between them, um, that trumps economic logic sometimes. And that can be very frustrating, especially for market watchers, right? So uh, this paradoxical trend helps explain uh, several what would be on the face of them puzzles in Asian energy, right? So why does Japan and Korea pursue sort of self-defeating mercantilist strategies? Why do they take their national oil companies and compete with other national oil companies to lock in trade routes, to lock in supply sources when there's only one oil market, right? If there's a supply disruption to the region, the market sets the price. I think that's how it works. So uh, you might have locked down a source that's just yours, right? But it's still going to respond to market incentives. So you're shooting yourself in the foot to some extent. Why, why engage in that kind of competition? You know, why is Japan in particular keen, happy, to lock in 30-year LNG contracts in the Middle East? It, does that not create a more rigid gas market? What is the benefit of a rigid gas market? Doesn't that make you more vulnerable? Um, why are China and India the, some of the biggest energy consumers not part of the IEA? This is the only multilateral energy solution in town that I'm aware of right now. There's potential for more, right? but that's it. In a, and then why is there no gas pipeline running from Russia through China to the Koreas and then back down? Diversify supply, right? build a more resilient infrastructure. Like, so bottom line, despite economic incentives that should be spurring regional cooperation, the logic is there. I feel like everybody sees it. Um, why aren't Japan, Korea, China working on a common economic or energy solution, right? Collective emergency stocks, a buyer's cartel, something. Right. You're not seeing, you're, like, you see some talk about some of these things, but you don't see the outcomes, right? And so in all of these questions, geopolitics is a big part of the answer. There are specific, more specific explanations in every case. But the Asian paradox, more specifically, plays a big role in helping understand why things are the way they are, the absence of collective action. And so there's this underappreciated political risk facing the region. 
And it's that Asian policy elites are behaving as, especially I'm focusing on Japan and Korea, uh, as if national security overrides economic considerations and that economic considerations don't have the opposite effect. They don't go that far in constraining national security calculations. Um, and as long as that's the case, collective action to solve collective problems is going to continue to be hard to impossible. So this is a big system level problem. Um, and so I guess I'm saying that having this, what we've had the last few decades, which has given us a prosperous uh, region, especially for Japan and Korea, they've benefited. Hot economics and cold politics side by side uh, is fine. It's been fine and it'll continue to be fine until it's not fine. Economic interdependence can't make the region more peaceful if there's a firewall insulating political and security decision making from those economic incentives. And so that's my concern. So maybe it's unfounded, right? I'm getting something off my chest. But that's my concern, is that whatever optimism there is on the horizon for Japan and Korean energy security, and I think there is some, that's what I started the, the remarks with, um, that optimism is taking place within a context of Asian nationalism, pervasive mistrust, uh, strategic and military competition. If you don't think that's true, look at the military spending trends, military modernization programs across the region. I'm happy to talk about that too. Um, but so the good news, or if you can call it good news, is that Japan-Korea cooperation, again, no love lost between these guys, is the Sinatra test in my mind, the hard test for regional energy solutions. So any Japan-Korea collaboration that might be possible should be able to extend to Southeast Asia if there's a common interest there. It should be able to include China in theory. Um, and so Japan and Korea to me are more of a litmus test for what's possible within the region. And if Japan and Korea can't collaborate to solve a common energy problem that they have, then I don't know what hope there is for the region. So. Wow. Thank you very much. This, is, this has been um, great stuff. We could actually do four panels, I think, on this. But um, what I wanted to do in order to save some time for some questions, I, I did want to take the prerogative for a couple of follow-ups here. Um, and actually first with something that pretty much everyone spoke to, which is this tension between a mercantilist approach or a statist approach, uh, government political interference versus free market uh, or relatively commercial operations of energy. And I, I think everyone pretty much spoke to this. In the past, obviously, there was a big school of thought in China about a sort of a mercantilist approach. It seemed as if market uh, energy solutions were gaining the upper hand for a while. You've talked about it in Northeast Asia. So the questions are sort of where's the trend line actually really going on that front? Um, what impacts, Ed, do the internal Chinese restructurings of the energy firms ultimately have there, do you think? I mean, are they going to break these up, make them more nimble commercial players, or is it just going to shift the political onus to a different SOE? Um, and ultimately, what role can the U.S. energy revolution play there? I mean, the U.S. nominally is purely commercial players. That's not the U.S. government selling energy, right? So to what extent can U.S. government or U.S. involvement as an energy exporter sort of accelerate uh, this move towards a more market-oriented Asian energy sphere? Jump in, please. I've got two trips to China planned in the next three weeks, so invite me back in a month and I'll tell you the answer. <laughs> um, I feel like the China's, as far as restructuring the oil and gas uh, sector is concerned, is at a crossroad. 
and, and I'm not sure they've decided quite what to do, which is why we're hearing some of these tri-balloons, or whatever the Chinese term for tri-balloons would be, um, uh, being floated uh, for the past two, three months now. Um, China was at a similar crossroad once before. Um, uh, the, back 15 years ago or so, uh, un, under the Jiang Zemin Zhurongji administration, um, three horizontally, uh, um, uh, horizontal monopolies, uh, namely um, CNPC, which was the onshore production company, Sinopec, which was the onshore refining company, and Sinook, which was the offshore company, uh, got restructured and they became vertically integrated companies able to compete with each other. They also had uh, started um, floating shares in, in, in the market. Um, and, and it was the direction was rather hopeful in the sense that competition, uh, capital markets were going to start disciplining the, 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 these uh, uh, companies. Unfortunately, un under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, uh, that direction stalled. And I'm not sure I understand the reasons why. Um, so they became rather comfortable cartel as opposed to real companies uh, competing with each other. So we're, we're at a crossroad now uh, where uh, you know, things could develop in a different way. Uh, as, as long as the party's personnel department selects who's going to be the next CEO of CNPC, it seems that you know, being the next ExxonMobil is a bit far off uh, uh, yet. Um, so, 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 so that's not going to happen um, anytime soon. If you think about how Asian industries uh, have prospered over the last three, four decades, they prospered be because they became internationally competitive. And it was the international market that disciplined uh, um, because they were export-oriented economies, you had to produce products that were internationally competitive, even if you're mercantilistic uh, inside your country. That's not where the Chinese industry is at yet, but they're venturing overseas in order to um, uh, compete with the Exxon Mobiles of the world. You have to tell the Nigerians why they should select you rather than Exxon Mobil for completely above the table reasons. Um, and, and that case needs to be made. The thing that you can um, do to really ruin a good company is to give them home turf advantage. I mean, Petrobras is the most recent example of a perfectly functioning uh, 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 oil company uh, that got spoiled because the Brazilian government gave them a uh, you know, home field advantage on the deep uh, uh, offshore pre-salt place. Um, if you don't believe me, look at Pemex, look at Pedavesa. Um, so you know, Chinese companies need to become internationally competitive first rather than just bulking up. And how they achieve that, I think, is what the Chinese leadership is struggling with, uh, along with a lot of other things you know, uh, at the same time. I would just say, if you put that in the context of the, the agenda that Xi Jinping has adopted in terms of radical market reforms, that would argue for breaking them up. 
And if they don't do that, it makes you wonder how serious the Chinese are about these reforms. Um, that's, that's one thing. Uh, across the region, I don't see any particular ch uh, changes. I think uh, they're looking to the U.S., and I think there'll be, uh, and certainly it'll impact the market in either in direct terms and or direct terms. But I don't think their, their views about ener energy have changed that much. I think what may, what may change things a bit is whether or not we're at a tipping point in terms of uh, wind and solar. If we have new storage capacity, if this new Tesla battery turns out to be something that lowers prices and, and increases storage capability, the Chinese have invested billions in wind and solar, um, even though they're still 70% dependent on coal for, for electricity. And that, that could change the way they think about it because they'll be, they could become a lot less dependent on the petroleum economy. But that, that you're, there you're looking at a 15, 20-year timeline. Uh, but uh, this, this is the, the problem. I, I don't accept that there's a firewall between economics and security. I'd say it's more like schizophrenia. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm not sure it's sustainable. In fact, a friend of mine, I wrote an article on foreign policy that got a lot of attention a couple of years ago called the two Asias. And the whole point is that you have the security Asia and economic Asia, and they're going in exactly opposite directions. Uh, Asia's becoming more integrated. You see this explosion of free trade agreements, the growth of inter-Asian inter trade and investment, and at the same time, skyrocketing military spending across the region I think last year Asia surpassed, for the first time in the modern era, surpassed Europe in military spending. And so I'm not sure how you can sustain those trends over time. Hmm. Can I answer that? Yes, sir. Uh, I totally agree. That's completely right. It's empirically right, too. Uh, you can point to evidence time and time again that shows this fissure, the bifurcation of the regional order into economic and security spheres. The question is when you have nexus issues. So like you're describing it as schizophrenia. It's a reasonable characterization. But when you have an issue that falls into both lanes, which trumps which? And the, like, there's, I don't have a lot of evidence for this right now, but my intuition is that national security is going to end up trumping economics because of these historically derived tensions, because of history and the role that it plays in political legitimacy, which is what the elites care about most. Um, but I mean, I'm guessing. I wanted to take the opportunity just to follow up on one thing that Meredith said, because I don't think this gets a whole lot of attention here, um, which is the vulnerability of Southeast Asia from the environmental front with changes. Secretary Kerry, uh, on his trip to Vietnam, I think in, in late 2013, highlighted some of the threats to the lower Mekong region, mm -hmm. um, both from man-made climate change and man-made changes upstream big dam building exercises. And he, basically, the, the, the fear that I think the Secretary spoke of and that I know a lot of developmental folks speak of, there's, what, 60 million people or so at risk uh, food-wise in the Mekong Delta. Is, is this on the radar screen in the right places? What can the U.S. and other developed countries do to sort of mitigate that, which seems like a real nightmare for the region? I'm really happy to be able to say that I think the issue of the Mekong region has risen on the U.S. policy agenda, and it's certainly one that is a very um, high level of focus and capitals around the Mekong region, and mm -hmm. it's starting to be so more in terms of Southeast Asia as a grouping. 
Um, China has also begun to engage more in discussions um, around the Mekong region, but there's still a huge asymmetry in that relationship um, and mm. problems in terms of upstream damming. Um, it's an area where I think the U.S. has a positive contribution to make in terms of bringing those countries together to coordinate. Um, I remember a couple of years ago we had a meeting in Hanoi and we were talking about hydropower. Right. Um, and even in a very small session where we had the Lao, the Cambodians, the Vietnamese, it got very, very heated um, between the Laotians and the Cambodians and the Vietnamese because hydropower is an increasingly important export for some of those smaller right. countries as well. So it's a, it's a very challenging issue in terms of both food security, the fisheries management piece, but also the farmland um, surrounding that region is um, quite at risk from climate change. Right. Um, more broadly, uh, the Philippines is uh, chairing one of the committees um, in the UNFCC talks on um, vulnerable populations, and they've recently become advocating um, for an increase in the level of ambition. So um, rather than a 2% increase in temperatures, a 1.5% increase in temperatures. And there's been a lot of research done on what a tremendous difference that would make, um, particularly in the archipelago nations of um, the Philippines and Indonesia, but also in the lower Mekong subregion. Um, one point on the state-owned enterprises in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. if I can, I think it's, it's an interesting question to think about in terms of the differences between Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, in Southeast Asia, you also have a very high degree of um, government uh, ownership and management of the energy sector and the power sector. Uh, but the only really, I would say, significant international company from that part of the world is Petronas from Malaysia. The others have been very focused within their own economies. And the dynamic that you see there, I think, especially going forward with this increased trajectory in energy demand is um, rising resource nationalism, mm. particularly in Indonesia, which has been a very important exporter. Um, but especially under new president, Jokowi is looking for ways that they can use more of their resources at home and also develop associated in industries that are going to you know, help the Indonesian economy. Um, there's a real challenge in doing that with a state-led approach, which can create a lot of inefficiencies. Um, and all the infrastructure that's needed is, is not yet in place to make that happen. So it's an interesting balancing act um, that some of the countries in the region are going through right now. Fantastic. I don't know if we had um, any questions from the audience. Um, if not, I've certainly got a few more of my own. Yes, sir. As always, if you can phrase it in the form of something resembling a question with your affiliation, that'd be great. Uh, Mike Bissetic, PBS Online NewsHour. Uh, Mr. Chow, can you elaborate a bit on the effect of the China water problem in terms of them develop the water shortage problem in terms of them developing uh, fracking and the other processes that you referred to? Well, in terms of fracking, um, the, the most prospective areas are in Sichuan and Xinjiang. Uh, uh, Xinjiang doesn't have a lot of water. Uh, Sichuan is seismically active. So they're challenges, shall we say. Um, I, I, don't think water by itself is necessarily a, a problem. We're in very early days in, in looking at unconventional gas uh, in China. Um, they're also going through a period of, of pricing reform on, on gas, and, and that would help uh, a, a, a great deal. Um, technology could be a, a solution uh, in terms of reusing frac water. 
uh, also waterless fracking people are, are working on. Um, so, but, but it's just too early to know uh, whether the Chinese are going to be successful or not. I, I would say one other thing, which was not part of your question, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, which is that I'm not sure that large companies working on unconventional gas is the way to go, necessarily. The experience in North America is small, medium-sized companies who are more nimble, more experimental, more entrepreneurial, have been the ones who led the shale gas revolution. Um, there's another structural problem that China has, which is it does not have an a, uh, independent uh, oil field equipment and services industry, which is also very helpful in North America in driving efficiency and, and cost down uh, to improve uh, uh, the, the economics of fracking. Uh, China doesn't have that. China have basically uh, the majors have in-house service companies, and they're kind of tied to using their in-house services. So I, I, there, there are lots of things about the structure of, of the uh, Chinese industry today that looks very dissimilar from the North American industry, and whether you can do fracking with Chinese characteristics or not, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, they're trying very hard. I wouldn't bet against them, given the Chinese record in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, but, but they will have to work, uh, work around those problems, including water, uh, in order to achieve the success that they wish to achieve. If I could just follow up on that point for a second, because what was it, last August or so, uh, the Chinese government slashed their targets for shale production basically in half, in best case scenario, right? In part because of these difficulties. Um, is there any possibility that the, the, the shale gas difficulties are playing into decisions about Chinese corporate restructuring? I mean, is that in the back of the minds, or is it more about anti-corruption and, and much bigger pictures? Uh, I just think the situation is very fluid right now. Hmm. In the second round of, of uh, unconventional gas tender that they had, they opened it up to independent companies. So, so you know, not just foreign companies, but Chinese private companies. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine if you had uh, Chinese entrepreneurs getting involved. L let's say you are a provincial uh, uh, industry that uh, uh, is highly energy intensive, cement industry, glass industry, uh, and so on. And you know the local officials really well, by definition, compared to a multinational coming from, from overseas, uh, working with a bunch of you know, boys, good old boys from Oklahoma City. Maybe that's the way to go rather than a, a Sinopec uh, shell joint venture in Sichuan, which is, had been the, the, the model. So I, I, I really think that they are experimenting, and, and which is a good thing. Dick Morningstar, Global Energy Center here at the Atlantic Council. Building on the fracking discussion, but also looking generally at uh, exploration and production and American technical capabilities. Do you see any opportunities uh, for cooperation between uh, American and Chinese companies on projects uh, either in China, I know Chevron's had some experience on that, uh, or in Central Asia or in other places, or is it just something that for the political reasons uh, and differences in business culture is just not going to happen? <laughs> 
Um, I, I, th I think that the opportunities are there. Uh, and, and I think the opportunities need to be seized upon. And the problem is not only on their side, but on our side as well. Um, I mean, if a Western company ever gets an onshore concession in Turkmenistan, and we may all be waiting a long time, uh, but it, if it ever happens, uh, the highest value market for that gas may indeed be China. And China's already pre-built the pipelines uh, for it. So why wouldn't, for a purely commercial point of view, you wouldn't ship that gas to China if that's a logical market? And, and it may take a while before you can develop alternative markets, which as you know, very know very well, Turkmenistan is also be interested in. But you're not going to ship 5, 10 BCM to India. You need a lot larger scale than that. So the immediate market may very well be, 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 be China. Uh, so you know, to, if you were to able to take politics out of it, which is very difficult, as, as all of us have said, I think. Um, the problem is that governments use the excuse that oil and gas is so strategic that they must control it. And that actually often gets in the way of sound commerce, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that. I you know, go ahead. Uh, I think that's a factor because American companies have technology that the Chinese don't have, at least not yet. And the, the concern that the Chinese will uh, rip them off if they go in is a big factor. And, and the flip side of that is, are the Chinese willing to really, the Chinese, the, the, one of the big problems is the Chinese just don't believe in markets. Um, that's why they're pursuing the energy policy they've pursued. And are they, will, are they serious enough about reform to let, let markets determine it, let companies with the technology in and give them a, a piece of the action they want uh, as an incentive, and that's a big question mark, it seems to me. This happened with, with the renewable energy sector, right? I mean, a lot of U.S. firms got burned terribly badly on, on intellectual property uh, in mm -hmm. China. I mean, is that sort of a cautionary tale then for yeah, any other? it's exactly the same. Yeah. Okay. And there's, uh, Anya? If you have a microphone. Anya Grigas, Truman National Security Project. Um, who do you think is going to be the most likely supplier of gas to China? Will it be U.S. LNG exports, uh, Turk Turkmen gas, or Russian gas? Or do you expect that there will be a mix of uh, all three uh, going forward? One of the questions I go around China asking Chinese uh, is, why aren't you invested in um, U.S. LNG uh, uh, terminals. Uh, uh, India is a buyer. Uh, you know, uh, other countries are buying. Uh, why aren't you involved? Um, and, and they give me a very, very vague answer. Um, uh, I, I, so, so you would suspect that they believe that there is some kind of barrier uh, to their participation, which may, may or may not be there. Uh, I think uh, Chinese have really overlearned the lesson of the Unical debacle, uh, which was very unfortunate uh, uh, for them. They, they, they didn't understand what really happened, and they think it was all politics, and it wasn't just about politics. 
Um, so they, they've, um, they've ventured in, in Canada. They're involved in some of the West Coast, uh, Canadian West Coast LNG projects, um, uh, including one that Petronas was, was the operator uh, on. I think they're interested in the Chevron uh, project in, uh, in BC as well. But so far, they have not done this. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't buy the cargoes once they hit the, hit the Pacific from Mitsubishi or someone else. Uh, but, but so far, they, they have been pretty hesitant. Of course, they, as you, I know you know, um, they're already importing uh, gas from Turkmenistan, maybe 25 BCM or so last year, uh, slated to grow to 65 and higher. Um, they're pre-building the pipeline capacity, so probably something close to that will happen. Um, I wrote an article on Monday that everyone should read uh, about the, 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 the unspoken disappointment of Xi Jinping's visit to, to uh, uh, Moscow last weekend and, and the dogs that didn't bark on, on the oil and gas deals. Um, um, so I, I, I think Russia, uh, uh, Russia has been a disappointment from a Chinese point of view. Uh, of course, a lot of things have changed since the deal was signed in Shanghai in, in, in May of last year, uh, so which may get in the way. But doing business, when I talk to my Chinese colleagues, they always say that doing business with the Russians are terribly uh, 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 difficult. And, and that and and kind of interesting for the Chinese to say to me that every all all commercial disputes have to be uh, uh, raised to the highest political level before they can be solved and and you just can't do normal uh, 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 business so but I think the, the the strategic reasons why both sides are interested in that gas trade is very compelling so so I, I don't underestimate that it will get done it will just take a lot longer than they say uh, uh, right now. Um, I, I don't know if I su su sufficiently evaded your question or not. <laughs> yes. Do we have more? Uh, yes, I have a question over here, then, then one over here. Hang on first over here, and then we'll, we'll get this gentleman on the. On the Thank question. you. I'm, I'm Dan Millison. I'm an independent consultant. Um, actually, I have two questions. Meredith, could you quantify your numbers on the coal fired power growth? I mean, Business as usual is, I've seen something like 1,000 gigawatts. I think it's more going to be more like half of that. Um, and a question for anybody that wants to take it. I've, I have a colleague who's been telling me, oh, you know, there's all this back-channel stuff about Alaska trying to export LNG to Japan, and that's part of TPP. Is, is that guy smoking something? Or, I mean, you, does anyone else hear about that? Because I don't. My, my, the context is I don't see shale gas coming out of the Gulf of Mexico or the East Coast being able to compete on price when it goes all the way over to the Western Pacific. Putting more into the market, of course, helps, but the, but the more logical thing that I can see is conventional gas from Alaska going to Japan, which is the only current LNG exports from the U.S. to anywhere right now. Thanks. And if I could actually just layer onto that and make it a real triple-barreled, the, the prospect for U.S. LNG exports in a period of lowish oil prices, I mean, how does that affect, given oil gas linkages in most markets worldwide um, and the portfolio gas nature of most of the LNG contracts in the U.S., what does cheapish oil do to LNG export prospects for anyone who wants to dive in? Do you want me to do the yes. coal question first? 
which I don't have a, a great answer for. I was using the IEA business as usual statistics for that, which show 50% of the coal-fired power plants by 2035, 50%, uh, sorry, of the power sector coming from coal by 2035, um, which I think is a, around the lines of what you laid out, but I'd have to look up the exact. And I should say Dan has done a lot of interesting work on this, showing not business as usual scenarios. So he's a great person to talk to on this topic. Any ideas on, uh, on gas well, prospects here? It's tricky because one thing, one of the, one of the consequences of the shale revolution is gas. The gas price has traditionally been linked to oil, and that's that. That linkage is coming apart, and so it's not clear where gas prices are going to go. Uh, Asia has also been a very fragmented gas market. There was an IEA study not long ago about calling for an Asian hub, being that would that would consolidate things a bit. But that, there hasn't been much much progress on that. I would note that I, I, at least one West Coast LNG facility in Oregon has been approved. So if you're looking at you know transportation as a factor and gas, that that could also. Uh, and I think there's one other one on the West Coast that's under consideration. So, but you're right. I think Alaska's. In fact, that's the only place that makes sense to export Alaska gas to is Japan. The driver for gas export is 250 Henry Hub price, right? right? I mean, that's the real driver uh, for it. And, and, and given the price differential between European LNG markets and, and Asian LNG markets, th that gas is going to go to Asia. If we export, that gas is going to go to Asia more than it will go, go to Europe. And, re and, and really, the question is, how, you know, Will the low U.S. domestic gas price be maintained or not? I, I would say that very cleverly, companies like Chenier have 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 uh, uh, given the buyer the price risk mm -hmm. uh, ra rather than the uh, uh, terminal operator. Uh, so, so um, you no, know, we'll see. On Alaska, um, you know that gas has been stranded up in the North Slope for the last 30, 40 years, and 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 the the financial barriers are very high on getting that gas. The the Cook Inlet gas that was Phillips LNG is completely different set of gas, and 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 that area now is short of gas. So so the bringing North Slope gas uh, on uh, <coughs> is. Companies interested in monetizing a stranded asset, supplying domestic Alaska needs, and the only possible home for that gas, if it ever is brought into production, is Northeast Asian market. So that there is uh, very much a, a language. I don't know how much is linked to PTT. I mean, I, 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 uh, uh, TPP, I guess. Um, uh, I, I may differ a little bit with Bob on how much um, LNG exports has to do with TPP. Uh, I, you know, um, we can export gas to Korea right now if we had the gas, since they are FTA country. Um, it is very important for domestic Japanese political reasons to say that as part of TPP, we will we uh, we will get American gas. That's a political argument to try to dampen the, the political opposition among the agricultural communities and so on in Japan on the trade-offs of what Japan's going to get. But in terms of real trade, I don't know how much impact uh, it really will have. Hmm. Got one question over here. 
So, uh, Doug Hengel, a German Marshall Fund. I'd like to hear a little more about nuclear in the region. I think a comment was made that Japan's not going to restart more than a handful of their plants. Is that really likely to be the case? Is, is China has a huge number of plants planned or under construction or planned. Is that all going to go ahead? What about Korea and others in the region? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the Japan question, I mean, just post-Fukushima, all eyes are on Japan, right? Yeah, well, so before Fukushima, they, they were aiming at a target of eventually having 50% of their electricity coming from nuclear, right? And then it's been effectively zero the last couple of years. And now Abe is interested in getting it to maybe 15% instead of 50%. Um, but there's still a huge nuclear allergy. So you'd be fighting a movement, a grassroots movement inside Japan to make that happen. But this again, you know, how much do elites control? How much do the how much does this fall into the national security bucket in Japan's own domestic politics? Um, so nuclear will probably, uh, if they can overcome, you know, civil society preferences, will become a bigger part than zero for Japan, um, and that will displace some of its fossil fuel needs that it's using that has now. And then for Korea, it's like I think nuclear is 25% and growing. Um, we just had a civil uh, like nuclear reprocessing agreement with them. That, I think, is a source of diversity for them in the future. Bob? Yeah, I think China's really the only place that's putting, uh, making a big bet on nuclear. I think in Taiwan, the government wants to build, I think, another plant, but there's a lot of grassroots opposition, so I'm skeptical that, that that's going to happen. I think Korea, it, there's, not, there's more public acceptance but there's no great plans for a big expansion of their uh, nuclear. And Japan, I think, is just off the table for the foreseeable future. So, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the changing economics. Nuclear requires enormous amounts of upfront uh, capital. capital. And if you're competing with uh, an LNG spot market or renewables as, as battery storage uh, improves, that, that, that's a big factor. Or you, you know, in a country making that kind of decision. So I don't, I, I think other than China, I don't see much expansion in the region. Hmm. Uh, I, I think it's really interesting to watch the growing environmental movement in China. I mean, it, it's true that, that China has by far the largest uh, nuclear, nuclear reactor fleet that's currently under construction. But in terms of new, new plants uh, that's on the drawing board, um, siting is going to be a real challenge, uh, and, and this, this is very broad. It has to do with you know, air pollution, water pollution, land use disputes in China, uh, the most recent paraxylene fire that, 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 that was in, in, in southern China. Uh, there is a growing environmental movement in, in China that will make uh, the, the, the very ambitious nuclear plants very hard to implement, mm. I believe. So something to watch. There it is. I was going to say, in Southeast Asia, there's been a lot more attention and focus discussion of nuclear energy. Um, Malaysia, in particular, looking at you know, very maturing oil and gas fields. Uh, but the social license issues, the environmental movement, have been prohibitive so far, except in Vietnam, um, where they are moving ahead right. developing nuclear energy uh, with both Russia and Japan. And um, the Indonesians. very incremental. Mm -hmm. uh, Indonesians have talked about it. Indonesians have been talking about it as well. But, right. 
Well, a lot of, a lot of countries talk about nuclear, right? <laughs> we do, too. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Listen, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. I wish we had another couple of hours. I'm not sure you all do, but uh, we could go on for, forever. I wanted to thank the Atlanta Council. I wanted to thank our panelists for, uh, for a great discussion. Thank you.